0: And welcome back, everyone, to another edition of Going For Two, presented by our friends at Home Field Apparel. I am your host, Matt Brown. I'm the publisher of the Extra Points newsletter. I'm joined here by my friend and colleague, Brian Fisher, of the D1 Ticker Extended Cinematic Universe. Um, It's great great to be here and great to continue our conference preview series with uh, a guest who I think brings a perspective that we don't often have on this pro- on this show that I'm I'm excited to, to dig into because we are talking with somebody here who unquestionably knows ball, which is which is nice. Now you know more than I do, but I, w- I wouldn't say that either of us are necessarily tacticians. Uh, or, or, or chalk masters or something, or who can, who can diagram what's happening on the field the, the same way here that, that Yogi can, um, we're excited to dig into the Pac-12 and talk with a, a real expert about it
1: yeah thrilled to welcome in yogi roth pac-12 network analyst uh you know now, now an accomplished author uh thrilled, you know thrilled the known yogi for gosh a couple decades now and uh you know if you want to say who's who's mr pac-12 it, it is definitely yogi i mean not somebody who's certainly associated with the conference called a lot of games i, I mean knows the the players on these rosters uh, inside and out uh not just from his, his role as analyst but you know he's he's part of the elite 11 he's part of uh, you know a lot of the nike camps that, that go on around the country and uh you know he, he's known a lot of these these guys that have grown up in 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 packer territory, really, since they were juniors in high school, so uh, nobody better to uh, to cover the league because it it really a fascinating in the Pac-12, given the departures of USC and UCLA, I don't anticipate there will be quite the animosity at at some of these games for for the Bruins and the Trojans like there would be for, say, uh, the the Longhorns and the Sooners in the Big 12. But really an interesting league, a a league that is certainly fighting for uh, a lot of attention nowadays. But, um, you know, they they got a ton of interesting storylines really across the the league, Um, you know, from from the top at at Utah all the way down to the bottom at uh, Colorado and, and maybe even Arizona State.
0: I, what i appreciate i think about this conversation was that it gave me a different perspective on the schematic um differences within this conference and reasons for casual people to be invested in, in many of these programs beyond just uh, utah yogi is his boundless enthusiasm for the players as human beings i think really comes through which is uncommon uh, in, in, with within, within broadcasting and color commentary, I think simply because many of them don't have the relationships with, that they have, that Yogi's had with many of these individuals. So let's uh, let's turn the time over to him. and Let's talk some some, uh, some West Coast ball. Uh, th- thank thanks again for taking some time here to chat with us uh, and, and and move away. I think from maybe the conversation of perpetual existential crisis for the Pac-12, and we can set aside. TV deals here and realignment there and just talk a little bit about what's actually going to happen here in a couple of weeks, which is a nice change of pace here for us. Um, I want want to start here by asking uh, a little bit about a program that I'm really interested in this year, which is Oregon. You have a a, a program that's made a a big coaching change. You have a big quarterback change. You've had a lot of high-level attrition. And uh, I've I've seen some analysts wonder, like, uh, you know, what what does the culture look like of this program? Are are they identifiable from the Oregon the past couple of years? Is this a... A uh, program in decline. When you look at just what what the roster is set up right now, do you think this is a team that's that's prepared to compete at a very high level this year, or do you expect there to be some growing pains with Bo Nicks and and bringing in a completely different kind of uh, coaching staff?
2: Yeah. Well, number one, thanks for having me. I Always love talking to you guys. I've been tracking you for feels like forever, right? Like remember we when none of us had kids. Now we're yeah. talking about like what our kids are doing while we're recording this thing. <laughs> um, but look, I, I recall this moment very vividly. I was calling a game at Washington State last year and drove back to the hotel and Oregon was on a bye. And I talked to their then head coach, Mara Cristobal. And the Miami thing wasn't a thing yet, but USC, obviously the job was open. And we had a really fun conversation around his team, his career, and how excited he was to be at Oregon because he said, this team is built to win big next year why would I want to leave? Like the, the thing was loaded when you look at just recruiting rankings, if you want to just go by that, uh, fast forward to, of course, him leaving in comes Dan Lanning. And I went to visit him in the spring and I'm actually going to head there in a couple of days. And I'm, I'm a huge believer in him in this roster and how quickly it's come together. Uh, this is a veteran team. You know, these are guys that have been on campus now two or three years together for the most part. They've added, as you reference with Bo Nix, uh, some talented players in the portal, in the backfield, players in the portal. I think this receiver group will step up. And I think heading into the season, it's the best defense in the Pac-12. And you just added in, you could argue, the best defensive coordinator in the country a year ago in their new head coach, Dan Lanning. So, yeah, I, I'm bullish on them. I think they've got a next-level star at every layer of the defense. Start with Brandon Dorless on the D-line. He's a top two defensive tackle in this league. Brett Johnson at Cal being the other one. Noah Sewell, I think he's the best player overall in the league. Um, I could tell stories about him for days if you'd like. And then Christian Gonzalez. I'm going to go spend some time with him later this week, and I'm up there. I think he's the top corner in this league when you project out to the next level. And this this year, this league is pretty deep at that position with Clark Phillips, Kaibu Blue Kelly, and some other ones. So, yeah, man, I think Oregon's positioned to make some noise, uh, and they're not going to roll over in week one. It can be a challenge. But they also went to Ohio State last year without their best players on defense, at least. One of them, you could argue, too, Justin Flo being out and and won that game. And I think they'll be better at quarterback um, and they will be a little more, more seasoned on the defensive side.
1: Yogi, Yogi, you've been around a lot of coaches in, in the Pac-12 over the years. If you are a new head coach coming into this league... But what is the first thing that they they kind of got to get a grip on? You know, this is a very different conference than the SEC and and others. But in terms of on the field play, what is something that Dan Landing and some of the other new coaches around the league need to know before they kind of go into the season?
2: Yeah. So my my partner is Ted Robinson, as you guys know, he's a Hall of Famer. Went in this last season, the Broadcasting Hall of Fame, and he asked Don Brown last year probably the best question of the year. Definitely the only one we really remember when you interview coaches prior to games. We called the Territorial Cup, which was his final game there before becoming the head coach uh, back in the Northeast. And he said, "Don, what's the biggest surprise for you as a DC coming into this league?" Right, this is Don Brown, like the the Godfather, Doctor Blitz, the whole thing. And he said, "You know, it was the intricacy of the run games. Think about that. We're in the cradle of quarterbacks, Pac-12. If you ask any f- general fan of college football, they're going to talk offense, passing game, explosive plays. And he said, the run game." So to me, when new coaches come in, I've asked every new D.C. in the last 15, 20 years the same question, and they've all said the variance of scheme on offense. Chip Kelly's scheme is much different than Jed Fish's scheme, which is going to be totally different than what Arizona deploys this year, which is much different than what Stanford's going to operate, which is totally different run game-wise to what Oregon State is doing with Jonathan Smith. Washington State brings back the version of their air raid. They're calling it the Cougar raid. You just don't have that. You know, you look at every other league, but the ACC is unique because you got to stop like the slow mesh, right? For instance, from Wake Forest. But other than that, um, most leagues have a style in which they play. You know, everybody's kind of gone to three wides, one back, RPO version of that. And in the SEC, I think there's been the, the variance has grown in the last three or four years, but it's nowhere near what you see in this league. And I still believe that is the number one reason why. We haven't seen a team go undefeated in conference play ever in the Pac-12. It's never happened. No one's finished the season undefeated out here. And it's not because the players aren't good. They still go to the NFL and we kick out the third most pretty much every year among power five leagues with less teams than the Big Ten and the SEC prior to the additions that they just made this past offseason. So, yeah, man, I think that's going to be it. And One of the best hires that Dan Lanning made was Bob Gregory. He's his defensive analyst. Bob Gregory has been in this league for you know, as long as we've probably been alive. You know, no pun intended. Maybe not that long, but 20, 30 years. Close. Yeah, so I, I love what he's done there and saying, all right, let me bring in somebody who really knows this league. is coordinated against the opponents in this league. So that'll be the thing. Um, and I don't think they'll go undefeated. I don't think anybody will in this league throughout the season, but th- that's going to be the, the task for him.
0: That, that's a really good point. And I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned it because for a a chalk idiot like me, which I, I think I bring the football more layman perspective to this particular show, I don't think that that's something I would have suggested if you gave me five guesses because there's not an option team in this league. There isn't necessarily somebody that embraces the absolute bounds of what you might expect in terms of tempo the same way that you might look at that in maybe some other conferences. Is there anything you think? specific to the pac 12, because we've had coaches come and go, and, and there's been attrition in this conference that creates an environment where you need to embrace that, the, the, you know, that, that kind of variance that maybe you don't necessarily see in the big 12 or the big 10.
2: Well, I think out here, you really, um, you have to really trust your scheme. You know, every coach will say that. Um, and then you have to, I, to me, like you can get beat in this league when you try to totally scheme up one player or one element. I don't think that's the case in other leagues now against Ohio state and Alabama and Georgia teams with a ton of talent. Of course you can't do that, but ultimately you can say against, let's just call it the, the middle of every conference. Let me take away this. Let me make this quarterback quote unquote left-handed. If he's a right-handed, it's kind of a phrase everybody in coaching often uses defensively. That, that's, that, that's the challenge. So you have to be so good and play so fast, which makes this league really fun. So like Cal, I think they're the most underrated team in this league. I think they have the second or third best defense in this league and the most talented roster that Justin Wilcox has had. And I truly believe this. I learned this from Paul Rhodes when I was playing at Pitt. He was our DC, and I would literally sit in on his meetings and his speeches because he was so inspirational. But we never had the best players, but if you can play defensively with guys that are going to run the ball and play really sound and understand all the adjustments that they're going to have to make when Chip Kelly has four tight ends and goes unbalanced when Utah has three tight ends and they split two of them out, like those types of things you'll win. And that's why I go to, Hey, what do you really know on defense? What do you know? Cause we don't have preseason scrimmages. You know, we don't have preseason games. So SC Stanford week two, gonna be awesome to see how these teams match up against one another's offense and defense that they haven't necessarily seen or competed against in quite some time. I mean, you got to go back to Alex Grinch against Wazoo where he had success against Stanford when he was the DC, but yeah, man, I think, I think it makes really, it makes this league really unique and anybody who's come outside of the footprint and into it says, Holy, you know what? I did not think the diversity of scheme is what it is. And and that's fun as a fellow football nerd, man.
1: It, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, the, the two Bay Area schools in, in Cal and Stanford. I, I was talking with David Shaw a couple of weeks ago. Just He, he was remarking how, how unusual it is because this is the first off season he's really been able to get with his guys just do to all the COVID regulation. We know Cal was the only team last season that, that ended up having a game impacted and, and they had to move it to, uh, to the end of the year against USC are are, are the, those two schools kind of the, the biggest ones in terms of the, where their ceiling could be and, and where their floor is just because we kind of really don't have a good picture of of what we're really going to expect out of them come, not just week one, but come week 12, week 13 as well.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I might say UCLA cause I don't think they're getting enough play. Like I could see UCLA playing Utah in the Pac-12 championship game in Vegas, to be honest with you, um, which we can get into later if you'd like. But yeah, st- having been at both of those schools a week ago, I, I totally believe that neither one is getting the value they deserve. Let's transition to Stanford, if you will. Offensively, okay, SC has the the highest firepower. Right, Caleb's ceiling is ridiculous. I think he is he earns the praise of the possible number one pick in two years. Jordan Addison, we know what that is. Mario Williams just does things differently than any other receiver in this league. Those three are real, and add in Travis Die. That foursome. That's unique. But when I look at Stanford on offense, Tanner McKee, he's a really talented guy. He's got a chance to be a first round quarterback. Like I hear from GMs all the time. Look at Bryson Tremaine. When he's in the game, their offense was totally different a year ago. Michael Wilson, with what I saw with my eyes, Michael Wilson was as impressive of a receiver as I've seen from last spring to fall camp. And I've seen probably 11 of the 12 teams, I think in person. I don't think I got to Colorado, right? So, Mike Wilson, then you add in John Humphrey, all the six foot five. How about Elijah Higgins, six foot three, playing the slot? How about their tight end room? They've got two guys, Ben Yerosik and All-American as one of the two. And this offensive line, Brian, to your point, finally they got, it's their first full off season. These are third year players starting on this offensive line. They've never had one. I mean, bro, when I was calling their games last year, they were still meeting on Zoom. I mean, think about that if you said that at Tuscaloosa or in Clemson or in OU or anywhere around the country, even in the Pac-12. You know, Cal was still meeting outside for the most part in their stadium. But Stanford wasn't even in person. So people take shots, and and David Shaw referenced it when they lost their finale against Notre Dame of take your shots now. And I just think that this offense is going to be able to score. E.J. Smith at running back is going to be able to move the ball. I think he's. I don't think they miss a beat with the transfers they lost at running back last year. And one of them, of course, Austin Jones going down to USC. I think if they can stay healthy, they're going to be really good. And defensively, they changed schemes, right? So we'll see what they do coming off the edge in this 4-3 defense now, you know, not two gap and stuff, just literally coming off the edge. I think their linebacking core when healthy. They looked the part. Blue Kelly's the top three corner, possible first-round pick at that position. Similar to Paulson Sanadibo, maybe not as long, but really talented on a bunch of levels. So, yeah, man, I I think both of those teams' uh, ceilings much higher than where they are now, and floor is much higher than where they are now.
0: I guess on on that note, because the conventional wisdom, I think, heading into the season is, is, hey, you know, USC's potential is enormous, but maybe the floor is 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 not quite as high as it might be in future seasons because there's some other roster concerns, new coach, and everything. We know what Utah is. Um, I think that's a program that is, has that is unquestionably earned the benefit of the doubt as they're replacing important players, given what, what, what you know how consistent they've been. But you're right. You're not talking a lot about the Bay Area schools. You're not talking generally a lot about. UCLA so uh, what, let's hear the the argument then for 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 buying heavily into that stock I think maybe we finally saw a little bit of proof of concept of what this team could be in the beginning of last season and then uh, they kind of faded away from the national consciousness what what is the the case for like nine win plus UCLA or playing important national games in November UCLA
2: well I think let's just look big picture at the schedule right I mean this Schedules as good as Chip Kelly's ever had. One would argue UCLA's ever had. Right? Michigan pulled out of the game they were supposed to play is my understanding of why they yep. have the three non-cons they have to start the season. I'm calling the third of those three. I anticipate them being 3-0 and heading into conference play. You look at where their bye is located. Right? They have Utah at home. Then they go on a bye. Utah at home. Now, Utah, if they beat Florida week one, they're going to be a top five team by the time they get to that point in the season. UCLA could be a top 15 team by the time they get that point in the season. And here comes college game day or whomever going to call it. And all the hype will be back in Westwood on that campus. Then they have a bye. Then go to Eugene. So if you look at like their most challenging two games, they got a break between both of them. And that will be the moment. And I think the moments for this program to ascend or to sit you know, a little bit behind where the expectation is within the walls of UCLA. So I'll start with that. Secondly, Chip Kelly's never had a quarterback this long in his system. And having called their spring game and being there a lot, where Dorian Thompson Robinson is now, here's an example. In the past, it would be, uh, I'm going to look this safety off to get to whatever, my wide receiver down the boundary. Let's just keep it really simple. And if he did or didn't do it, Chip Kelly could say, hey, why didn't you do that? Now the conversation is, hey, I could do it a little bit better because I'm already doing it. Like he's already looking those guys off. He's already manipulating defense. So he is like taking his game to a completely different level. And I look at he and Zach Charbonnet, I don't think there's a better duo in the backfield in the country. When you look at running back and proven quarterback and the threats that they both provide, right? Dorian is a nightmare for every DC. If you track his numbers, this guy played in, I think it's 732 snaps offensively in high school excuse me, he played 372 snaps in high school. By comparison, Jane Daniels played almost 800 coming into college. Dorian started as a true freshman, right? And now here he is in year five being the dude. I just think this understanding with the offense that he's under is just, it's going to be magnificent. Jake Bobo is going to be, I think, a chance to be a first-team all-PAC-12 quarterback. And then you just add in the defense. The additions they had in Darius. Mewis out linebacker. They had two twins. They come from North Texas to play the defensive line. The secondary got better. I mean, overall, I think this team is really, really impressive. But overall, I'm buying UCLA. And I was the only guy that picked them to win the South last year. They clearly didn't do it. They need to beat a ranked team. They need to get over that hump. I think this year, this team, their maturity, Chip Kelly, the addition, as the defensive coordinator, uh, they bring in a guy who coached me back in the day at Pitt um at DC from the NFL uh, I'm just I'm just Bill McGovern I'm re- I'm really bullish on the Bruins for, for those reasons
1: and, and I think a lot of people are, are, are equally bullish, at least from a national perspective, on, on their crosstown rivals at, at USC. Uh, Link a lot of uh, Link, lots of better. lots of
0: shiny toys on that roster. You can understand why somebody in New York or Chicago or Atlanta would be very bullish on you, USC. You
1: definitely can understand it, and, and there is an understandable talent upgrade at, at a lot of those positions. But but when you're talking with the coaches, not only on, on staff at USC, but maybe even even across the conference. What is the biggest difficulty that, that you kind of heard about integrating some of those transfers, not only into your system, but just kind of into your program overall? And, and how has Lincoln Riley you know kind of managed that uh, throughout this process? Because it is a, a pretty significant roster turnover there uh, in, in downtown L.A.
2: Pretty significant, bro. <laughs> like the most unique roster, I think Lincoln Riley's calling it in the history of college football. And it is right. Like w- w- I interviewed him on signing day and he said, yo, we're going to we're going to really turn this thing over. And I'm sitting there thinking like, yeah, eight, 10 guys, here we go. I'm not thinking 20 new faces as transfers, only eight true freshmen come in enrolling from high school, over 50 transactions in terms of players out, players in within this team. There's only like 105 on the roster and only 85 are on scholarship. So it, it it is an amazing task. I often go back to what Chris Peterson told me the day he was hired at Washington. I flew up there to do an interview and I said, how long will it take to build a culture? And without flinching, he said, Yogi, about 18 months. So we're not even going to get to 10 months before they play a game in the Lincoln-Riley era, right? It's just not going to happen. So the challenge is how quickly can they come together? Now, the players have talked about it. You guys have talked to players about it at Media Days. I did as well. And they said that they're really tight. And I think transferring and the sense of urgency, adding in the weight of SC, the standard of SC, the history, the pedigree of SC, I think can accelerate a lot what it may not be able to accelerate or what we're going to find out is when it's third and eight and a coverage changes and a blitz changes and the D-line stems and these guys are playing together for the first time in a competitive setting just against Rice. I'm calling the opener. I think i going to, able to pick it up. Right, And I think that's going to be the beauty to watch this play caller in Lincoln Riley and then Alex Grinch on the other side. What are they asking their guys to do? Knowing that as they get deeper and deeper into the season, the teams that they play they're going to have been together for years. They're going to have run their own system for years. So I think SC, they'll, they'll get up to speed, but we'll be a, will it be enough to handle late in the second half at Rice Eccles Stadium in Salt Lake City midseason? I don't know. Like, I, I don't know, man, but I, I am really excited to find out. I do think that it's a little overhyped in terms of, like, it's, it's a little lazy, I think, to be like, well, what do they have on offensive and defensive lines? Like, I think their offensive line is good enough to compete in this league. Uh, I think if you comped it to last year at Oklahoma, um, USC would be just fine. And we saw Oklahoma move the daylights out of the ball. On the defensive front, Tule Tui Pelotu is a first-team all-conference player. They added some players. There's some guys we want to see, like Corey Foreman. Can they evolve? I think the transfers at linebacker and edge rusher are all going to impact. The secondary, totally reloaded for the most part, other than a safety. Uh, So I'm excited. I I don't think they have all – I'm building my depth chart out now to call the game. They've got guys. It's just going to be how do they adjust in real time? That, that's to me what it's going to come down to.
0: In, in the situation that that you're describing for a a, a chalky idiot like me and perhaps others who might who might be listening here, if, if, if without those reps of continuity and the ability to build on field trust with with, uh, with 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 your teammates, just because you haven't had those reps, does, does that force you to be in a more reactive situation than on the field, or 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 is is that not 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 really correlated
2: I think it can, but as you've seen forever in detail man, like how do you deal with the team that has the chalk class per se you go fast yeah right like you don't show as much you show it late defensively like th- that's why I think it's gonna be really fun to be a total nerd around this team in games right because they're gonna see different things right They're going up against coordinators that they've never seen defensively for the most part yeah right like I just I think that's gonna be the thing. Um, and I don't know how they're going to do because, because you're going to be in moments in a game where, excuse me, where they're going to have to change at the line of scrimmage. They're going to have to slide a protection and every team does. And every team gets burned at some point in the season. I'm just really curious when it's, you know, when it's that time, when it's those three to five snaps a game, how do they manage it? You know, Jordan Addison practiced for the first time with his quarterback in training camp. I think he'll do great on slants and deep balls and deep posts, but how are they when they got to move the sticks? Right. Like those are the little things that at least as a former wideout, I can comp that position. Those are reps. Those are reps. And in training camp, you only get what 29 practices. You don't have a ton of individual time. So you got to make the most of it. So I'd imagine I'm, I'm going to I'm just going to guess here and I'm going to ask Lincoln Riley yeah. this pregame before we call it. But I I'd, I'd be shocked if the whole playbook's in. I know Caleb can handle it because he ran it. But I'd be surprised if all the protections, all the route, I'd, I'd be surprised if everything is in, because he does a lot of cool stuff when you go back and study what he did at OU.
0: Is, is that is would that be common for any kind of team that's experiencing this kind of attrition heading into the season that you wouldn't have your complete playbook installed by week one?
2: Yeah, it'd be common for teams that don't experience this type of attrition. right? Like year one, and every head coach I've ever interviewed is like, hey, we just kind of get the bases in. You know, like we, we did it in spring, we... We threw it all at them in camp and then we pared down. And then, you know, I think when they get into year two, they, they kind of come clean and say, yeah, man, like we were just making sure we were operational. We were fluid, we could play fast. That was the goal. Uh, but now our guys are taking the next step. So, and I think players go that way. I, I think that for a job, for a player, year one is to, as a wide out, for instance, year one is to learn what you're supposed to do. Year two is to have great mastery around every receiver and their position and what they're supposed to do. Year three is, what does the defense do? And year four is to to ball in that regard and be able to almost call the defense that's coming and make your adjustment in real time. So to do that in eight, nine months, I don't know. I, I hope they do it, it's gonna be fun to watch.
1: If we're going off resume, Lincoln Riley, probably one of the, one of the best play callers in, in, in the conference, but another one that, that I always love watching is, is up at Oregon state and Jonathan Smith, they, they made the big step last year that they got to a bowl game. And, and I know how important that was for the program, but you know, they, they've taken a lot of transfers in over the last couple of years as well, that they, they've made it work and, and they've, they've gotten to where they, they want to be as a program, but they're, they're on that kind of doorstep of, of making that next step. Uh, what, what's kind of the future like for the, for the Beavers going into this year and, and how has he been able to really sustain that program uh, given given a lot of the limitations that they have at OSU.
2: Well, I I can remember I uh, was talking to a coach of the Seahawks about five years ago. And and you guys know I've known Coach Carroll for a long time now. I met him when I was 19. I said, what do you think about Pete? And they said he's uncommonly consistent. And I say that because that's Oregon State to me. Think about the coaches that have left. I think they've lost one or two coaches in the history of his head coaching tenure at Oregon State. Right? And guys get offered jobs every year. Jim Halchick's as good of an O-line coach as theirs in the country. Brian Lindgren gets offered jobs every offseason, but they wanna stay. So I think consistency there is number one. I think number two, he's got a real strong vision for what the team wants to be, especially offensively. Right, They wanna be a team that's gonna run the ball and to do that thing or take shots down the field. And they've done that. They got a back this year in Damian Martinez. I think he'll be a freshman All-American and I hate putting that on freshmen, but I think he's the next great one there, they've got enough weapons to get down the field. Defensively, they make a change—a coordinator, Trent Bray, former player. There, he got the job before the bowl game, and now for Oregon State fans from back in the day with Mike Riley, they're going to love this defense because it's going to be that style four-three. It's four bump. It's basically press coverage, relatively man-to-man on the outside, long corners, and Alex Austin and Rayon Wright, two guys that can be physical at the line of scrimmage, long arms, really athletic, can plan an island. I think that's what this team's going to be. So I, as I look at their schedule, it's kind of the opposite of UCLA, right? They have Boise State, they have Fresno State on the road, they have Montana State, who I think went to the title game at their level of football, respectively, a year ago. In a unique top preseason top five, I believe yeah. for FCS this season. Yeah, so it's not going to be easy, and they're playing in a stadium that is you know under renovation, which I think is going to be cool because it's going to be sold out every game, only one side of the field, but it, it'll be a fun environment. Uh, again, I'm heading there in a couple days. I can't wait to see what it looks like and the and the upgrades they've made. But overall, I look at their schedule and every game is kind of a circle game. Right? I could see them beating SC with the style in which they play like they did last year. Right? They put it on him. Chance Nolan, while not named the starter, I anticipate him being the guy. He's proven that he could play and make plays in big games. Uh, Luke Musgrave, he's got a chance to be an All-American at tight end. So overall, um, I like this team. They can make noise again and be in the thick of it. One of the things that I love about
0: listening to you and, and watching you call games is, I think you look at, at, at college football players and college football teams with a sense of empathy that um, not other commentators have, and you're able to find uh, the, the positives or, or optimistic things here without, you know I think, resorting to ridiculous Pollyannishness because you understand how, how, everything, how all the component parts fit together, which is, 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 is refreshing um, but in that same vein, you know, looking at this league, I'm sure you can find something that you really like about every single team in the Pac-12. There's individual players and things that kind of fit together. Is there anybody or a team that you look at right now and go, I, I have significant concerns because I, several of the, of the programs that I think... Uh, out of market correspondents might say, Wow, I don't, Stanford's kind of regressed these past couple of years, or Cal hasn't really found an offense. We're not really buying in on them. You see a uh, level to be, reason to be optimistic. Is there anybody you don't feel that way about coming into this
2: year? Yeah, well, I, thanks for watching the games that I'm calling and for that take. Um, that's what I hope to be. Uh, honestly, I hope to be grounded in truth, uh, call the game with a set of optimistic but honest eyes, and coach the viewer while I'm doing it. I think when I look at this season, the teams I'm most curious about, right? And I'll say that word cause we're in training camp and, and you guys have yeah. been to camp. Who knows? Yeah. Well, the coolest part about being at a camp is that every team I've ever talked to thinks they're going to the playoff, you know, or going to the natty, including the teams I played on, right? Everybody at Arizona thinks they're gonna win the league, right? And we know what four wins would do for Jetfish. That'd be huge, right? If they could split their non-cons, it'd be huge. Right? So I, I say that with the teams that I'm most intrigued to watch, I'll go number one, uh, probably not so obvious is Colorado. You know, I look at this as, as pseudo like year two for Carl Durrell. And I say that because he got hired, if you remember, um, right before the pandemic, right? So after signing day, Mel Tucker takes, uh, the Michigan state job, he comes in, he meets with this team once pandemic hits, right? No spring ball, uh, the unique truncated season. They take a run at a possible Pac-12 South title that year. They come back the next year um, with a lot of hype and expectations. Didn't work out. He made a bunch of changes. I think five new coaches on his staff and a lot of guys left, right? Brendan Rice being a huge one. Um, Jarek Broussard being another big one. A lot of guys have transferred. I say that because all of the guys that he's wanted from Mike Sanford offensively because he wants to run a pro-style scheme. He wants to run what he knows, which is you know that style of play. Remember, he spent almost a decade in the NFL after his time as the head coach at UCLA. He wants to be a physical brand of football. He wants to still spread you out as as teams do in this era, but he wants to be known to to, to be able to run it, right, and try to dictate terms a little bit. And then from a roster standpoint, when you talk to those players, like Robert Barnes, who'll be an all-conference player at Inside Backer, taking over for Nate Lambin, they feel they're the tightest they've ever been. And I say that cause I, I'm really intrigued. And this is a team that with the roster they used to have, should have beat AM, who gets a dramatic amount. I, in my opinion, too much praise for expectations around their program, too much hype around their program. When I watched that game a year ago or even watched them throughout the season, yeah, talented team, but Colorado should have won the game for all intents and purposes. And I think if they do, they it changes the, the trajectory of their season last year. So, my point is that I'm excited. They haven't named a quarterback yet. They got some new players. They have some returners. I'm excited about them. Uh, I don't know where they're gonna net out record-wise. And then I go Arizona State, right? After calling their spring game, I walked away after talking to guys like Ricky Pearsall, who's no longer there, or talking to players um that are no longer there at different position groups. I was thinking, you know what? They might surprise some people if they could figure out quarterback. Emory Jones comes in. We haven't seen him yet with this team compete, but he came in there after spring ball. He sounds like he's going to be the starting quarterback. I like Xavion Valade, the transfer at running back from Wyoming. Um, I think Elijah Badger is a receiver who's got a chance to burst onto the scene this fall. They've been talking about it for two years. I think this offense is going to fit his skill set. He'll get fed early and often. And they've done well in the transfer portal, especially on the offensive line and a tight end. So I just want to see how it's going to come together, right? Like a year ago this time, there was so much dialogue around them and the NCAA, that's like whatever now, right? Because it's NIL, it's the portal, it's the realignment of conferences, et cetera. I'm really curious how a team who lost some major star power, whether it was Jaden Daniels, Ricky Pearsall, Jermaine Lole, uh, let alone, I think they had 12 guys, 14 guys are in NFL training camps. Like people knocked the pro model, like, I like think 12 to 14 guys were in a training camp this year from Arizona state it's a pretty good number. Um, last I checked. So I, I, I'm just excited. Like, how does it come together? Like what, what's this program thinking? I'm going to be working their They're open a Thursday night. Uh, so I'm looking forward to, to dive in a little bit more with them, but those are the two teams that I'm like, I don't know if they're going to win two games. I don't know if they're going to win six games. I don't know if they're going to take a run at it, but I'm really curious.
1: One, one of the teams that uh, everybody seems to be chasing in the Pac-12, the one pick to, to win it all, uh, is, is Utah, again, trying to go for, for back-to-back titles. Now, we, we know what Kyle Whittingham's program is, is all about. We, we know some of the, the players that uh, can, can make an impact for them. But you know what? They, they In the past, they've started slow. I think you look at some of those non-conference losses early last year, even going back before that, it has been a team that has started slow. Is there cause to optimism going into one of the bigger non-conference games out there in the swamp against Florida, against an SEC program that we know a lot will be made about win or lose around that game, just in terms of narrative? Can Utah not only get off to a good start, but really kind of capitalize on this kind of moment they have as a program?
2: Yes. And I say that really grounded, and here's why. Uh, I had a chance to spend some time with Coach Whittingham at media days like, like everybody did. And I asked him one question. I said, do you feel because I remember the year they came into the league, I called the game against SC and they lose on a questionable spot. And you're saying to yourself, wow, how do they compete? I think it was Lane Kiffin was the head coach at the time. You're like, how do they even compete at this level, right? And I watched them years earlier, put it on my Pitt Panthers in the Fiesta Bowl with uh, Alex Smith and Urban and that whole deal. So I asked Coach Whittingham uh, one basic question, which was, does it feel like this is the exact right time as well as having an accurate depiction of your team. And he said, yeah, it just feels right. Like it just feels like this is the next step for us to go from, can they win the South? Can they win the league? Can they win a big bowl game now? Because it just feels right to have these expectations. I say that because so often, what do we do with these shows? And we hype up, let's say this year, Texas, right? A team that isn't really proven, but really sexy. SC, same thing. And we talk about them being a dark horse for the playoff or whatever it may be, uh, but there's a lot of holes there that are unproven. I don't know about the holes for Utah and where they are there. Like inside backer, if there's one thing we can trust about Utah's development. In now it's 18 years for Kyle Whittingham as the head coach. It's the front seven's going to be right. They're going to be right. Lander Barton's going to be a Freshman All-American at inside linebacker. They got a transfer from Florida who's going to be able to be you know, not necessarily Devin Lloyd in terms of the the type of player, but he'll have an impact similar to his. So I, I just think it's, it's grounded confidence when we're talking about them. I think they have all the tools. Keith Keithy's all everything, quarterback. I mean, you, you know where I'm going with this. I don't think it's like, oh my God, let's get hopeful about this team out West. It doesn't feel like that. What's
0: so fascinating
2: to me, I think about where Utah is right now you know one it's it's
0: really uncommon to have anybody to have this kind of consistency at head coach and that with with assistant coaches people have, have you know especially on the defensive side of the ball like being there and have been around for a while and they have built a program that while the recruiting has definitely improved it's not USC it's not Ohio State or Alabama and because it's in Salt Lake City it probably never will be given what prep football looks like in that state and where you have to go to get guys but the expectations and the performance have steadily improved over a decade plus, where it's not just like little old Utah sneaking in here to the Alamo Bowl, but you know, coming in here and, you know, matching Ohio State blow for blow up until the very end of the Rose Bowl and, and achieving at this very high level. Other than this ability, where I mean, from my vantage, it looks like this is a coaching staff that has been uncommonly good at uh, player development and roster and uh, recruiting evaluations as they go and and find the right three and a half star that they know is going to be a fifth round draft pick in a couple of years. But can you think of anybody else that's managed to to follow this blueprint over the last like 15 years of college football? It really does, they really do feel like a a throwback to a different age, a, a blueprint that's very difficult to follow.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm racking my brain and, and Oregon State did an, a version of this, yeah. right. right? Where they'd identify two, three-star players and bring them in and all of a sudden they'd kick out and they'd be first-round picks in the league. You know, granted, they also did it through the junior college ranks a lot when they had you know, some of their yeah. greatest success. And, yeah, Chad, yeah, the whole thing. Um, I, I, think, I think a couple things. One, to your point of consistency and scheme defensively right? Offensively, there was a world where they were turning Oh, that, That's right. They really
0: had a, they, yeah, they had an OC like top. every every year for like six years in a row, right? Aaron Roderick was in yeah. and out and yeah.
2: But now it's Andy Ludwig who had been there early on when they took a run, I think in 2009, they beat Alabama and put it on them pretty bad in the Sugar Bowl. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andy Ludwig was there and then he went on a run of his own as an OC bouncing around. Now he's come back and, and he loves it, right? Like, I don't think he's necessarily dreaming of like, can I go get the next OC job, right? I think he's very happy there. And this offense has really developed there. Look at Tyler Huntley, talk development. He's the most developed quarterback I've seen in my career with my own eyes in 20 plus years now, studying that position. Uh, I also think that the state of Utah, um, if you really look at it recruiting wise, Matt, it has grown dramatically in terms of the amount of D1 players is kicked out. Now it's not Ohio necessarily, it's not Florida, it's not California, but I think that's added to that of keeping some guys home. They've also lost some, right? Like the Sewell brothers, like we've seen both of them go, go to Eugene. Uh, so I think that's helped. And I think also as they continue to win, if you would just do like a little bit of work, you'll recognize that Salt Lake city is as crazed of a football city as I think there is in the country. They've got four to five radio stations, 24, seven, 12 months a year, talking Utah football. Like I played in Pittsburgh, it was Steelers and then Pitt. Like, it wasn't all Pitt Panthers. It's all Utah Utes. Like, it's a really dynamic place. They've sold out almost 60 straight games. So I think, like, recruits are starting to see it, right? And you see what Jalen Johnson did. Five-star prospect, flipped from SC, became a first-round pick. Saw what Clark Phillips did. Even, like, Jack Tuttle back in the day going there. Uh, Cam Rising was a five-star quarterback. He's in my book, I like guess, as, as a highly ranked guys. Guys want to, I think they're learning more about it. And that's why I think week one is so critical for them as a program, because even the lazy fans are gonna watch week one. And if they beat Florida seven o'clock Eastern on national television, uh, it's gonna be a great moment for that program for people to see what they've been doing for the last decade plus.
0: Yeah, I, it, very quickly, in my defense, when I said, because it's in Salt Lake, I did not mean to infer that, this, that because this is a market that does not care about college athletics, um, I, You know, Brian and I, I think, both have firsthand experience knowing I, I've, I've been on those radio stations several times. I know how much, I mean, you know. perhaps more so there than anybody else in this footprint. My thinking, my, my response was more of, it's not Dallas, it's not Houston. It, you know, Salt Lake may create Five D1 players or, or, or B5 players in a recruiting cycle compared to you know 25 uh, in Atlanta, and it's a repu- it's a city that has um, a reputation for certain uh, groups that is different from other cities, right? This, this, so the Utah Jazz are not typically big players in a free agency. I, I have been told similar, although clearly you can have a very good experience, and they are they are fishing in, in uh, deeper waters than they have been maybe seven or eight years ago.
2: That that that
0: would be fair to say, right?
2: Yeah, I think every, every place, like I learned this from Jurgen Klinsmann years ago, the former U.S. national team coach. He said that the best teams take on the personality of their community. Right, The Pittsburgh Steelers, whether they run it 100 times a game or not, are known as like a physical punch-you-in-the-mouth type of program. The LA Lakers, they can play the best defense in the world. They're going to be known for their offense. Yes. SC, same thing. Like I think Utah, this offense was explosive a year ago, but they're known for a front seven that's going to punish you. Like that's kind of their identity, Exactly so yeah, Lake man. City. Um, yeah, that's
0: that's yeah, exactly. built built right in
2: there. Yeah, um, you bring up a good point, though. We would like to talk
0: about this book, um, and, and know, that, 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 uh, that, you know that 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 you're, you mentioned in camera, and we 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 plugged other people's books here. Can you tell us a little bit about what you just put together?
2: I can. I'm excited for it. I'll show you the cover because I'm really proud of the cover. It's called Five Star QB, um, and ultimately the story began years ago where. Uh, Three years ago, I came out of the Elite elite 11 with a guy named Joey Roberts, who was a co-author on this book. We said, parents and players keep asking us the same questions around recruiting, around development, around transferring, around NIL, around dealing with their own families, around dealing with women on college campuses. Like They continue to ask the same things. So we said, well, let's put together some advice. Let's create a book that can serve as a tribe of mentors for the walk-on like myself or the five-star player like Kaylee Williams, the next one coming up and their families to be able to just have some information. So we asked 54 five-star quarterbacks, the same 22 questions, and curated their answers into 18 chapters. And what was really fun was we layered in letters from what I'm calling ambassadors of the game. 40 ambassadors, Pete Carroll, David Shaw, Chip Kelly, Dan Lanning, Ryan Day, John Schneider, Brendan Tracy, the Holinsky family, um, you know, Jed Fish, Jake Dickard, on and on and on. Uh, guys that I really respect in this profession to give advice to those going through the process. And, and we had to do it. And, and what was really fun was that, number one, the players were really honest, right? And as I look at this cover, I see Josh Rosen, Matt Barkley, Caleb Williams, Bo Nix, um, Will Greer. You've got guys like Mark Sanchez uh, from back in the day. You've got Red Bomar from back in the day who, you know, what he did in NIL back then yeah. would be nothing today, right? Uh, so it was really fun for them, I think, to share their story and their path. And then for us is curating what, what I was reminded throughout the whole process. And that's why I showed you the cover is that when a five-star player commits to your school, you see the ranking, you see the highlights, you see the arm talent, you see projections, you never see the face. I would bet that most fans right now of Michigan wouldn't say like, yeah, that's, I think that's what Shane Morris looks like. Like, I don't know if Texas fans or SMU fans, or they know exactly what Garrett Gilbert would have looked like the day that he signed. Maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. But my, my, my point is that like, they're all human beings. And when I did the research and Joey did the research, we found 134 quarterbacks in history since the year 2000 rankings began are able to call themselves five-star quarterbacks. Some were a five-star quarterback for a week. Some were for four years. Max Brown was named in eighth grade, five-star quarterback. Gunnar Keel went to a junior day when he was 13. Right? Like a a lot of these guys have dealt with these expectations, but not one of them raised their hand and said, name me a five star. It got put on them. And a lot of people consider them bust. And I say that only 10 of them out of the 134 were drafted in the top 10. Right? So by math, most of them would be quote unquote bust. But when I did this book, I'm like, you're a father, you're a husband, you're successful. You've gone through adversity. You've learned from it. Like you're the furthest thing from a bust. Like, any fan would crumble under the pressure that these guys go through. And it's great because they're getting a free education, they get great opportunities, but I wanted the book to just give them a palette to share. And that's what this is. It's 600 pages of dope ass advice for anybody going through their journey.
1: But in a, a great uh, trip down memory lane s- saying a few of those names. I, I mean, it's funny just thinking back, I, I see you're you're wearing your Elite 11 shirt right now. And just to think back on on just that competition, a, a, a decade ago, you know, we're going down to Orange County and there might be, you know, a couple of parents, you know, might show up, a, a few other, you know, recruiting writers. Now it's like a, an entire event. I mean, you, you go back last year, right? When NIL, uh, the, the switch kind of flipped, you guys were, were holding your elite 11. I mean, you had guys that were kind of so, some of the, the college counselors coming out, uh, doing their NIL, NIL deals off to the side. I, I can only imagine that you've seen the, the biggest change of, of those guys they are not just only five star quarterbacks, but the three and four stars that are coming to the elite 11, the amount of Pressure that they have to go through right now, it, it has to be kind of insane to notice, you know, see, see where they've gone the last couple of years, because, uh, you know, they, it, they're like rock stars now. And, and I, I would imagine that when you are dealing with them, treating them, how to, how to handle that pressure is, is not only really a big part of the book, but, but also a big part of what you, you just deal with, uh, when, when you're chatting with them off to the side, right?
2: Dude, you, you if you open up, I think it's chapter eight and it's about NIL and it literally starts with like July 1, 2021. That was the day it became real. And I was at a Starbucks at the hotel and I see Spencer Rattler there, who was a college counselor at the time, one of the college guys you referenced. And he's talking with an adult who is in his family. And I'm thinking like, what's going on over there? And it's an agent who I had known for a while. Um, and I asked Spencer afterwards, he goes, yeah, I just signed with them, did my NAL deal. Cause it was legal that day. And in that moment it was like, oh my gosh, like, this thing has changed. Like it used to be like you, if you saw like a agent or a street agent hanging around, cause a lot of them would hang at elite 11 events. You'd be like, yo dude, like you can't be here. Now it was like, they've got a set meeting, right? We were there with open doors and guys were like signing deals in real time on July one, 2021. And it was just, it was amazing. And, and I'm a huge fan of the essence of NIL. I I really am. Like, I I think players should be able to have camps. I think they should be able to sign jerseys and sign pictures and do anything like that. Uh, But what's come like the form of it is way different than what anybody anticipated. And to your point, so is the pressure. So every year I sit around the group of elite 11 quarterbacks on day one, when they get there and there's a scrum with media and Brian, you've been a part of this and I just listen to their answers and they're so uh, perfect. Right? They're so political. They're, they're just the, the absolute definition of cliche. And then we bring them in for media training, which is the thing that I run there at Elite 11. And I ask them about it. And a lot of times guys don't know what to say. And I think it, I'm reminded of, excuse me, I'm reminded of that every summer with high school kids, right? Like this summer, uh, a quarterback going to Miami who was reportedly getting a lot of money, he was there. Uh, I also just interviewed Caleb Williams on the PAC 12 networks a couple of weeks ago. And I'm still reminded in the interview of like, yeah, He's 19. They're still really young and they're still going through this and their brains are still developing at that pace. And, and that's what I urge fans and coaches, uh, media members of like, we're in a tough spot, especially in the media, because now with guys making money, you're like, do we talk about them like pros? And, and I've heard that dialogue a lot this past offseason season specifically. And, I, and I'm not going to go there because they're not. And that's what I tell the players. I say, look, the NFL didn't add two more teams. Less than 3% of you are going to make it. So please stop spending time building your logo and leverage the logo on your jersey. Because USC, UCLA, Oregon, that logo is going to do way more than anything you create. Leverage it, lean into it, and then make money from that. And and I think it's it's really fun to talk to guys because you're learning not only where their heads are at, but what's being fed to them. And to me, the first thing the head coaches should be talking about on visits, is not NIL deals, it's not even playing time, and it's not even the degree anymore. To me, you should be front-loading mental skills. And when I reflect on this book, it's really a book around developing the mental skills to be able to handle a visit, a commitment, a decommitment, an NIL deal, a relationship, a relationship gone south, whatever it may be. And, And I think that that is like the thing we need to be pouring into 16, 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old young men, specifically, stu- specifically student athletes of, hey, dude, here's some tools. Because you can't just turn your phone off for a week. That's not going to eliminate it. And that's what players are telling me in terms of what tool are they using? They're just turning it off. They're, they're taking it off their phone. Y- you need more than that. And the coaches that I really admire and a lot of the guys in this book have said, yeah, we are front-loading mental skills within our program to help our guys develop the tools to deal with the type of expectations and pressures, Brian, that you just referenced. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that
0: because this is one of the things I've been trying to really wrap my arms around with NIL and I'm not sure the best way to kind of advance this. And and you, I I think, have more experience in these kind of conversations than just about anybody. But one of the challenges I think about this world is that a typical 20-year-old, whether you're a five-star football recruit or a regular student at Southeast Missouri State, When you're 20 you often don't totally understand who you are yet you haven't figured out your own identity you're still trying to figure out your values and what what you stand for and a world in the nil era that's so centered around social media endorsements i feel like collectively we're asking these uh, five-star athletes here it's not only important for you to immediately find out the answers to all of those questions but then then also financially commoditize them and try to sell them and turn that into your brand and, and pitch that to the world which is a challenging thing to ask anybody, but especially somebody who's under already immense other pressure and isn't sure how they feel about things. Is is this something that you've experienced through part of the conversations for this book?
2: Matt, you nailed it, man. I mean, okay, let's, let's break it down for a minute and unpack it. Um, We are asking, let's rephrase. Athletes are allowed to profit off their name, image, and likeness, and it's amazing. And there's a lot of money thrown around that right now. And how do you grow? your brand, every single person, whether it's the CEO of open doors or influencer or whatever, I would say, I would imagine they would say something. And I've heard a few of them say it, you gotta grow your social, you gotta grow your social. So we're trying to front load mental skills and say, look, we know where pressure's coming from. Let's take the dark side. We know if you miss a kick or if you miss a catch, we know where death threats are coming from on a Saturday night in college football. It happens once a year. We all know about it, right? But on the flip side, we're saying, hey, if you wanna really grow that brand, man, really grow that social. And I think they contradict each other. So that's why when I talk to athletes, I say, you gotta have a set of principles that you're gonna abide by. You need a playbook before you enter this environment because if growing your social is the only focus, okay, go ahead and grow it, but you're gonna have to deal with a lot of things that you are not anticipating. In the book, there's a quarterback who talks about, on his visit, the student section was chanting his name. Two years later, excuse me. Two years later, they were chanting his name but booing to get him off the field. It's going to flip just like that. So it's a, it's a tough dance. If you really study social media, and, and I'm not like proud to say that I have, but I have for this book, is most players who have really impressive followings outside of Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, could argue the two best players in the country. They made their following and grew their following in recruiting. They grew it in recruiting because they maybe committed to three or four schools, right? They visited everybody. They didn't make a choice as a sophomore and just stick with it. They worked the game and they tapped into different fan bases. And there's a world where if, if I'm an advisor to a young man, I might tell him, hey, that's a good thing to do if you just want to make money. If you want to grow your NIL brand, go ahead and do that. Now there's a dramatic dark side to all of that. One, like it lacks a lot of integrity, right? Two is that I think you're playing in the sandbox, whereas you can make a decision for college and go make good money in NIL and stupid money if you're a baller on Sundays in the league. And and I just think that's the dynamic that isn't getting played because we have to have compassion. And I love that you said empathy earlier when you hear me call games, because I hope I'm I've always done that of like, I have empathy for a high school prospect who doesn't have a lot of money or can use some more support and resources in his life. And he's like, I'm going to grow my social. I'm going to work recruiting. There's a strategy involved in that. I have a great empathy for doing that because you should go get paid now because you are going to be part of possibly that 3% that, or that 97% that doesn't make it to the NFL. So there's that. And then there's the flip side of like, what happens when you do play or what happened? Like how much are you pouring into the training and preparing and development bucket versus the social bucket. And I just think that I see players pulled and I say, it cause I watched it at SC for almost 20 years. I say that because in LA, oftentimes your community is in LA, right? So I'm, a, if I'm a local prospect, my whole community tells me how great I am on the daily. Maybe I am, but when I get to campus, we've seen it many times where I'm not that great. The film doesn't lie. So external reality, in the building, in the facility reality, clash. And when that happens, I've never seen a player tap into, let alone maximize their potential. And I think we're seeing a version of that happening right now with NIL with players that are young. I've talked to parents of 10-year-olds that are like, my kids got it. We're going to quit every sport. Come on, bro. Like, what do we? That is not the way to find success. That is a direct path to burnout. And those are some of the things that we address in the book.
0: No, I, it's I mean I I gotten this several times over the last 6 months parents of 10, 11, 12 year olds asking me for advice and like what I've said is like my my friend my advice is to let your son play Super Nintendo <laughs> and focus on school we can talk about this in 6 years because you can't be you, you, your young man hasn't even finished puberty yet. Like what what are we doing? But that's, you know, that uh, people get brainworms about this kind of thing cuz they feel like if they don't do it now it, they'll they'll miss those opportunities and that's not
2: always the case. Yeah, it's it's hard to be I got great empathy for the parents in this. I've talked to a parent of somebody in, uh, in the East Coast the other day whose son is a baller. He's in fourth grade, but he's a baller. And I see it. I got a second grader. I know who's a baller on the playground or within our respective sport that we're playing. But if that individual goes all in on their craft, maybe they'll be Caleb Williams, who at 10 years old made the decision with his dad he wants to be a baller. But maybe they'll be the other side. The guy who as a sophomore in high school is like, dude, this is a job. In the the book, the chapter is called The Wonder Switch. And I truly believe that every athlete has this sense of wonderment and imagination that's usually lit up, but it gets turned off externally. Could be by a DM, could be a coach, could be a parent, it could be a playing experience, it gets turned off. And I think the parents in the room have to recognize that and be like, dude, we gotta turn this thing back on. We gotta get back to the joy and the fun. And I think that is by playing multiple sports, cross training, those are some fun aspects that I think will allow a young athlete to find success.
0: Yogi, thank you so much here for taking some time here to to chat with us. We're excited about the book. Is is the book out now or is it it published officially in a couple of weeks?
2: No, it's out. We're really proud of it. Um, You know, we kind of did it on our own and it's a top book in coaching right now on Amazon. Uh, Paperback's been out since media days in late July and hardcover literally came out this morning. So I'm, I'm pumped about it. And, you know, thanks for spending some time and talking about it, man.
0: Of, of course we'll'll uh, we'll, we'll make sure to include a link for people that can get it in the show notes. Um, thanks again We look forward to chatting with you later on this season. All right uh, Friends, it has been wonderful to spend the last uh, close to an hour talking about the West Coast here but before we conclude I do want to bring in our good friends the 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 patrons of this broadcast and many other broadcasts our friend at homefield Field apparel do, do our friends at homefield Apparel? produce uh very comfortable, officially licensed bra uh, apparel for all manner of West Coast individuals and programs. They do. I'm wearing a Washington shirt right now. It says bow down to Washington. Brian's wearing a Colorado one. Those are great. They've got I think just about everybody in the Pac twelve. Um
1: I saw, I saw Martin Jarman, uh, the UCLA AD, was wearing his home field apparel uh, the other day. So, I mean, like, uh, a lot of great designs out west as well. So, uh, if you're a Pac-12 fan, there's definitely something for you on homefieldapparel.com.
0: I, I want to say they have everybody but Oregon off the top of my head. They just recently shared Oregon State, which is wonderful. But I'm not here to talk about Oregon State. I'm here to talk about the other OSU. Friends, this, this week, it is time to shop about the Bucks do i have several t-shirts uh, on on their way via ups with officially licensed ohio state stuff on them yes have i looked at the collection the finale here the penultimate team in big new saturday do i know what is coming yes um is, is it is it is it everything i hoped it would be yeah it, it, it is um I would be wearing these, and if I if I get the shirts before Friday, even though they're, uh, t- I think technically embargoed, am I going to appear on camera wearing one? Yeah, I I am. Connor, come to my house and stop me. Um, I'm going to I'm going to i to call, drink two monsters, and you can call the police. Um, it's it, they're, they're 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 wonderful stuff. Whether you are a, a degenerate fan of the Ohio State Buckeyes like I am, or a fan of many other institutions, West Coast, Southern northern division three you can find it at homefieldapparel.com and when you spend money there ideally to buy a bunch of ohio state stuff so we can usurp penn state fans from atop the leaderboard on on big news saturday but for anything else use promo code extra points to save 15 percent off that order that lets connor know at Homefield that we're good broadcast partners so they continue to sponsor us so then i could use the money to buy Homefield stuff
1: uh, time, time is a flat circle, and, and so is our home field spending p- habits. But uh, I, I mean, it's going to be a fascinating week. You know, big, big uh, goal set there for for the Penn State fans uh, last week, setting the the new record and, and blowing past uh, a lot of their uh, brethren, not only in the Big Ten, but you know, across the SEC and the entire home field portfolio. But uh, the bar has been set. Very high for, for your Ohio State fan base. But uh, I, I, I am quite confident that if, if anybody can match and exceed what uh, the Nittany Lions did last week, it's definitely the Buckeyes this week.
0: Uh, there are several Ohio State fans, and I say this with love. Uh, Ohio's like pro- a cornerstone of the Ohio economy uh, is T-shirt sales. Um, th- that I think is like the third biggest export of the city of Cleveland. A homage is, of course, a Columbus company. Um, this this is what we do. We stopped making other things. We now make T-shirts. Um as do our friends in Indiana. Uh, I'm going to wrap this up here before I get into trouble. (laughs) Um, You can, of course, uh, check out our other conference preview shows and everything else that we've done here for Going for Two on Apple and Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get that service. If you enjoy these broadcasts, please give us five stars so we can appease our algorithmic overlords. You can find my work at extrapointsmb.com, where I am producing original reporting and unique analysis about the college sports industry. Um, We are about to publish, or will have just published a story on the Division II's only Canadian university and why they are playing their games in America. Uh, it's about COVID and it's about a bunch of other stuff too. Uh, we have stories coming up about what business school research says. Uh, the if, uh, impact on recruiting and wins uh, is on uh, changing your apparel sponsorship. And I'm going to and spoil this for you. It doesn't help you win any more games. It just helps you get more money, even though the press release says this will help you with recruiting. It doesn't. Um, And and, uh, a couple other, both the lighthearted and more uh, analytical stories about the future of the NCAA tournament and television broadcasting from the Big Ten to Division Two. You can find it all at extrapointsmb.com. You can find Brian's work across D1 Ticker and the Collegiate Sports Connect full of many deep, interesting, original video interviews. Did I get it all?
1: I think so. You know, speaking of uh, collegiate sports, for Pactual fans that uh, maybe did not get their fill of uh, conference realignment or TV partners and and the media deals that are are coming up, we had had a lot of those conversations on Collegiate Sports Connect uh, this past week, including some uh, very, you know, actual media experts that uh, can provide a, a lot more detail into terms of some of the numbers and, and insight that uh, you're not going to get on your local message board. So, uh, or, or social media. So uh, go ahead and check those things out uh, if, if you will. And uh, otherwise we will uh, we a lot of good stuff uh, there on the D one ticker. If you're not already subscribed, a, a busy time in college athletics. And now is that is a great place to kind of get caught up on everything that uh, is, is happening in and around uh, all of, all of FBS and beyond.
0: Yeah, please, please do. So we don't have to get a real job. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you on the internet again very soon.